0: Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Larry Stutzraim, Director of Research here at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. And welcome to the release of our new report, Scale, Scope, Speed, and Survivability, Winning the Kill Chain Competition. As you know, kill chains are a process to find, fix, track, target, and engage targets, and then evaluate the results to inform follow-on actions. Successfully completing this process is known as closing the kill chain, and the U.S. Air Force has long wielded a major kill chain advantage against our adversaries due to our superiority in sensors, communications, weapons, and training, and individual initiative. Yet this advantage is now at risk. For over 30 years, China studied the American way of war, specifically how we conduct combat operations as a system. As a result, The PLA developed a warfighting strategy that seeks to disrupt or break links in U.S. kill chains, and they are modernizing their military accordingly. Countering this approach requires the Air Force to do more than just build a better mousetrap. The service must understand and feel what it takes to secure a kill chain advantage. Well, to discuss the report and its recommendations, we have with us the author, Mitchell's own Heather Penny, a senior resident fellow here. And also, we have two distinguished guests. First, Lieutenant General Joe Gus Guastella, retired Air Force General, and active duty Brigadier General Richard Face Goodman. Well, first, General Guastella is a senior fellow for Air Power Studies here at Mitchell Institute. He focuses on strategic communication and key aerospace leader engagement. He's a command pilot with more than 4,000 flight hours in the F 16 and A 10, he served multiple combat tours, instructed at the U.S. Air Force Fighter Weapons School, and before he retired, he was the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for operations. So he brings a senior leader insight to kill chain superiority. Hey, we're also privileged to have with us Brigadier General Face Goodman. Uh, General Goodman's the commander of the 57th Wing. And that wing is the Air Force's most diverse wing, comprised of 36 squadrons and over 160 aircraft. It includes the Air Force Weapons School, the operation group that uh, exercises our aggressor squadrons, the red flag exercise, green flag exercise, and as organizations are essential in developing and honing tactics, incorporating advanced networks and aircraft in a realistic threat environment. All that places General Goodman in a great position with unique insight and uh, General Goodman, a big call out to the entire 57th wing. What an incredible team of people out there. So thank you both so much for joining us today. And let's uh, begin with an overview of your paper, Heather. Uh, First, before you start, let me remind our audience, feel free to raise your hand using the raise your hand function on the Zoom app. You can also submit a question in the Q&A window any time during this discussion. And we'll get to those questions in the back end of our program. So with that, over to you, Heather.
1: Thank you, sir. So we often write about aircraft, tech, technologies, sensors, and the things that airmen need to need to successfully prosecute combat operations. In the end, though, these capabilities are all about one thing closing the kill chain. Or as we would say in the fighter squadron, putting bombs on target on time. Now, it's one thing to attack a geographically fixed target that doesn't move. It's entirely another problem to attack dynamic and fleeting targets, targets that appear, they move, and then they disappear. And those are difficult because you have to be at the right place at the right time to first detect them and then complete the kill chain before that window of opportunity is lost. In the early 2000s, we thought it'd be a miracle if we could do this in under 10 minutes but we got really good at it and we could close kill chains much faster. So as we look at the pacing threat of China, we anticipate that over 80% of targets may be these kinds of moving targets. And one would think that we'd be able to exploit the kill chain advantage that we've established over the last 20 years. But the future is not going to look like the past. Militaries apply force or effects through the kill chain. The kill chain is the enduring foundation of combat operations. In fact, we can consider military conflict a kill chain competition. We seek to close our kill chains while preventing the adversary from being able to close theirs. China understands how we do this. They've studied our way of war for over 30 years and they have devised a strategy and are modernizing their military to systematically dismantle our combat operations, our kill chains. So in this report, we propose that we can secure a kill chain advantage by evaluating our force design as a kill chain system, and specifically by pursuing the right scale, scope, speed, and survivability in our kill chains against China's system destruction strategy. So rising to the challenge of peer conflict demands that the Department of the Air Force transform its force. And this is exactly what Secretary Kendall is striving to do with his operational imperatives. He's trying to identify those key operational challenges that the Air Force would face in a conflict with China and solve those problems. So for example, next generation, air dominance, family of systems is his operational imperative to develop the capability to establish air superiority in that pacing scenario. So let me state first that I think that Secretary Kendall's initiatives are absolutely right-minded. Here's my concern. These capabilities will likely not be fielded in meaningful quantities with mature tactics, techniques, procedures, and everything that supports them for at least 10 years, maybe even 15. So we're talking 2035 to 2040. Moreover, while the Air Force is thinking in a system of systems manner, how everything fits together, and hence jadc 2 multi-domain operations, the Air Force's Air battle, advanced battle management system, we're still doing this mission analysis in more of a traditional capabilities gap kind of way where we seek to solve operational problems. Here at Mitchell, we propose that thinking in terms of a kill chain competition can be a useful framework to measure our own effectiveness as a holistic operational system. So this is a nuanced perspective, but we believe that this shift moving beyond just looking at system of systems to solve operational problems, to looking at how we win the kill chain competition matters because that gives us a way to measure in the design, our advantage against China. So what is a kill chain? If we get back to basics, I think we're all familiar with this doctrinal representation of the kill chain and its steps. Find, fix, track, target, engage, and assess. Now, when we execute kill chains, each of these steps is a function, a node, because something physical like a sensor, a satellite, or an aircraft has to do it. And the arrows in between represent the information that has to be passed to the next node to progress the kill chain. Now this could be internal to weapon system. For example, a fire control radar might use a wire to transmit the target queuing data to an air-to-air missile. But what's important to note is if any of the functions, these nodes or these processes, or the links between them are broken or lost and that information doesn't progress, the kill chain can be stalled or at worse broken. Importantly, unlike the conflicts we've been engaged with for the past 20 years, where we were prosecuting maybe four or five kill chains per day, a peer conflict would present us with tens of thousands of targets. And that means tens of thousands of kill chains. Here's the challenge. The PLA is prepared to contest every element, every node, and every process of the Air Force's kill chains. We know this. They've told us this through multiple white papers and military documents. So how are they going to do it? They've studied our way of war for the last 30 years, as we've said. I mean, after the overwhelming success of Desert Storm, they looked at the air campaign and how that sought to blind and paralyze the Iraqi military. And now that's exactly how China plans to target us. They understand that we operate as a system, and they understand our kill chains. So they'll target us in four ways. First, they plan to target our key system nodes. Those are our aircraft our satellites, and our sensors. These are the physical things that they will seek to target. Anything that's capable of fulfilling those kill chain functions, including weapons. So the physical nodes. Second, they'll seek to target our information flows. And that means primarily our data links and communication. They might do this through electronic warfare or jamming to destroy and disrupt those data links to prevent the information from moving forward and to disconnect the physical nodes. That will progress the kill chain from progressing. Third, China will seek to distort and destroy the system relationships. For example, if they can take away a key function like AWACS and force airborne fighters to adapt in a way that we haven't been trained or networked for, that will disrupt and degrade and potentially destroy those air-to-air kill chains. And finally, they will seek to destroy our tempo, the speed of our kill chains. Many people think of that in terms of distorting the OODA loop or getting inside of our OODA loop. And yes, they plan to do that. But when when we look at this within a kill chain context, they want to be faster than our kill chains or slow our kill chains down. And one way they could do this is by, for example, weaponizing our rules of engagement and surrounding targets with civil entities, or they could uh, effectively progress, uh, prevent us from progressing from the targeting to the engagement. They also might use deception to prevent positive combat ID. or Potentially use electronic warfare to to break that positive combat identification and force us back to an earlier step. Bottom line is that China's strategy of system destruction seeks to dismantle our kill chains at every step and every link. And here's kind of a visual example of how they plan to do that. The PLA doesn't have to play a war of attrition to feed our to defeat our military. They know our systems, and all they need to do is render our operational system ineffective. That's ultimately the purpose behind their anti-access area denial systems. It's not about a ring that we can't go inside, it's about how they plan to execute their warfighting strategy of system destruction. That's the foundation of their warfighting strategy. We have to understand that if we're going to effectively counter counter it to deter and prevail, we must understand conflict as a kill chain competition. They have been aggressively modernizing their force structure and the PLA is not slowing down. They're modernizing their threat systems and they're building up their inventory. Remember they're playing the home game, not the away game. And so even with a numerically smaller force they can do more because they don't have to project power to the other side of the globe. Now, if you look at the slide and these are our kill chains and in the bottom left-hand corner you can see that we have a high volume multifunction node. This node can execute multiple steps and processes in the kill chain, and it can simultaneously service multiple kill chains, yet it's low quantity. Now, this is very similar to our AWACS or other other high-value airborne assets. Very capable, very efficient, but a lucrative target that has outsized impact to our kill chains. So if the PLA is able to kinematically destroy a functional node in the kill chain, they can effectively negate the rest of that kill chain. Similarly, if they are able to jam a data link, they're able to negate the rest of that kill chain. Or if they target and are able to take down one of these multifunction nodes like an E3, they're able to effectively disrupt and destroy and erase the remainder of those kill chains. Losing that node could disrupt our relationships and force us to try to adapt in real time to create new kill chain relationships. That may be an option if the connectivity works, But we don't necessarily know if the data is right or if we even have the tactics or the authorities in place. And finally, if they want to extend our OODA loop, they could potentially put us into a cycle where our kill chains could not progress. As I mentioned before, this might be because of a virus, could be that functional nodes fall victim to deception or electronic warfare that disrupts target custody, ultimately forcing us to start over. But if our kill chains are unable to progress, China doesn't have to physically destroy our nodes to render our kill chains ineffective. So to counter the strategy of nodal attack, network attack, relationship attack, and temporal attack, we need to take a different approach to understanding how to secure that kill chain advantage. So this is a little of what JADC2 and ABMS are trying to get to. By expanding battle networks, by connecting different nodes to each other, they can create multiple pathways for kill chains. And you see that within that top diagram. If we increase our networking and create more interoperability across all of our weapon systems, not only do we create more resiliency across kill chains, we can actually create more kill chains, more kill chain volume. It's important though to remember that weapons are a a functional node. And the more weapons we have, the more kill chains we can close. Weapons, munitions, can effectively multiply the kill chains of all the other nodes. We also need to remember that kill chains are not agnostic like these purple little circles. Not all sensors are equal, not all data links are equal and not all weapons are equal. So although we've been representing the kill chain as if these nodes are interchangeable purple ovals, in reality, it's much more like the diagram on the bottom where there are actual platforms and sensors and actual weapons that have their own limitations and capabilities with unique data requirements and unique data links. So not everything is interoperable, nor is every sensor or node equal, even though they might do the same type of function. Importantly, targets will impose unique informational requirements on the kill chain. So for example, the kind of information necessary to close a kill chain against a hardened aircraft shelter is very different from the kind of information and update rates of a maneuvering enemy fighter. So just like we all learned, we need to start from the target and move backwards. So do kill chains. As we think about the PLA system destruction strategy and the kill chain competition, how do we establish and secure kill chain superiority? So we at Mitchell recommend four key principles to ensure that superiority, scale, scope, speed, and survivability. It's important to understand that these principles, which we believe are enduring, are also contextual. For example, the kill chain attributes we needed to have superiority in Iraq or Afghanistan, a permissive battle space against a small number of fleeting targets, is very different from the kill chain attributes we would need in a highly contested peer conflict in the Pacific theater. So in many ways, what we're proposing with kill chain superiority and kill chain competition takes us back to threat and scenario-based planning. So what does this mean? We need to right-size the scale of our kill chains for the target sets. For example, if there's only three targets, we don't need a large volume of kill chains. But if there are tens of thousands of targets that we need to be able to hit in a compressed timeline, we need to size to that. And that has implications for our force size, our capacity. We need to have numerically more uh, weapon systems, more nodes to generate and close a necessary volume of simultaneous kill chains at any point in time. But we also need to right size the scope of our kill chains for the theater. Scope is the range, so the distance, the area of the battle space we need to cover, and the time duration. Literally, how far do we have to go? What is the square mileage? And how long do you have to persist within the battle space? Range is difficult enough, especially because More distance is more time, and that effectively dilutes our forces when you consider the vast area of the Pacific and further complicates the density of our kill chain system. But we don't necessarily have to be equally present across the entire theater, but we'll need to have the forces in the right place at the right time. And this, again, also gets into duration. Uh, Not only having the kill chains to prevail and protect a conflict, but having the persistence and availability of kill chains to be where we need and when we need. We also have to be able to outpace our adversary's countermeasures. This is speed. And this includes their attempts to spoil our kill chains, for example, using scoot and shoot tactics as a means to be inside our timelines, or they could be active attacks against our kill chains, trying to break them. But we have to be able to close those kill chains faster than the enemy can identify the kill chain and then break it. So speed refers to the time necessary to complete the kill chain. We've got to outpace the adversary there. And finally, survivability. And again, it's the survivability of the kill chain. Now there's two main ways that we can ensure this, and the first is fairly traditional, right? We can create kill chain survivability through the survivability of the individual sensors, weapon systems, weapons, and data links. But we also have to be able to withstand attrition. This is, after all, going to be a highly contested environment. So we have to ensure that attrition will not impact the survivability of the kill chain itself. We still have to close kill chains even through combat losses. And again, all of this is contextual and dependent on the geography and adversary capabilities. So, when we take into consideration the scale, scope, speed, and survivability, if we right size all of those against our adversary, this approach can give the Department of the Air Force the kill chain superiority it needs to prevail in a conflict against China. So, building off of these recommendations, What do we actually need to do? How do we move this academic discussion into actual policy decisions? So first is increasing that kill chain scale will mean we need to increase our node quantity and interoperability. We need to buy more stuff. This is really truly a case where buying, where more is more, increasing the number of sensors, platforms, weapon systems, aircraft, um, and weapons and munitions inventory. Within our battle space, you know, the more interoperable nodes there are within the kill chain system, the more potential kill chains are available. And these nodes could be single function; it could just be a single sensor. It could be multifunctional, so it could con, could contribute to multiple steps of the kill chain. It could be high volume, so it could service multiple kill chains simultaneously. Or these nodes might even just pass data; they might be a gateway or a repeater. But again the simple truth is more is more we can't do more with less and again here's another quick win more weapons the more weapons we have the more kill chains we can close and second is interoperability we've got to increase the interoperability across the kill chain s- system um, and so that means we need to understand what nodes are relevant to connect and for what missions the air force is doing uh decomposition so they're working to understand Um, what their mission threads are and what those mission elements inside of those threads are so they understand how to connect and what makes sense to connect. But we need to invest in the data links to ensure that we can exploit the the increased uh, nodal quantity. And remember, these kill chains are not agnostic. It's not just about the enemy. It's about where the fight is going to occur. And that defined scope, going the distance, covering the area and doing it for the duration you might be in the right place, but if you're not there at the right time, you're still not gonna be able to prosecute the target. So we need to increase the quantity of long of long range physical kill chain platforms. The Air Force must have those survivable long range cap- uh, capabilities in quantities. So the B-21 is an example, same for NGAD, but we must understand that the planning force, so, so through operational analysis, So we actually understand the number that we need to ensure that kill chain superiority. We have to think about what the actual demand is going to be if we're going to be successful. And it's not just about the weapon system. We have to have the weapons to close the kill chains, and that means buying the right mix of standoff and mid-range weapons to achieve affordable mass. Mark Gunzinger has done great work on this. Please look in the show notes for that, or you can look on our webpage as well. But as I said earlier, Weapons are not only the critical end game of the kill chain, they can increase our kill chain scale as well. So they do have a multiplying effect. And we need to make sure that we can do so at the ranges necessary in the theater. And then finally proliferating our space-based sensing and networks. It's not pragmatic to think that airborne assets will be able to persistently cover the entire span of the Pacific, but space can. So whether or not it's a space sensing layer or space communication as a backbone, Only those satellite constellations will have the persistence we need across the area and the range to facilitate kill chain superiority, and only space can provide us that time duration. We have to be able to outpace China's efforts to spoil our kill chains, and that means accelerating the speeds of our physical kill chains. And this isn't just more mock or hypersonic weapons. It also means having penetrating aircraft like the B-21 or NGAD, or the CCAs that will accompany them as a family of systems. Because when you're inside, when you're able to penetrate, the physical distance of the target is less, which means the time is less. We also need to increase kill chain network speeds. The faster we can transfer information and process it, the faster our kill chains will go. And space will be important here, especially when we're prosecuting kill chains that use nodes that may be beyond line of sight from each other. And then finally, accelerating the time it takes for kill chain processing, carrying and construction speeds. This is advanced battle management. Dynamic moving targets will be our primary challenge in this pacing scenario. So we won't necessarily know where the targets are going to be and when they'll be. And so that means we won't have pre-constructed kill chains, right? So the Air Force must develop those automated tools to to provide air battle managers the ability to have a common fused operating picture, prioritize emerging targets and pop-up targets, And then evaluate and optimize how they pair targets uh, to strike platforms and then real-time build those kill chains improving kill chain speeds even at the margins can make a huge difference between success or failure not just of the individual kill chain but the entire operation and finally increasing the survivability of our kill chains and as i mentioned we often think of survivability as just how aircraft can defend against threat systems you know, how stealthy an aircraft is, what kind of countermeasures it is. And those are important because if the nodes can survive, if the physical assets can survive, the good chances are that the kill chain will survive too. Same with data links and networks. But we also need to be able to tolerate nodal and network attrition. So this gets back to scale, where more is more. The more quantities of sensors and weapon systems and networks we have, the more interconnected and interoperable they are, the more attrition tolerance we can take because if a, kill chain is, if a kill chain node is lost, replacement nodes can take up the slack and not distort those relationships. So similar to mesh networks, if we allow kill chain data to jump, um, we can keep that kill chain alive, even though the data link is lost. Ultimately, the kill chain and their information, it must survive the enemy attack, even if all, not all the nodes or networks do. But so much of that's gonna be far into the future. What do we do today? What do we do for the next 10 years? And the Air Force is working towards the future, but this is back to the future. I mean, if we look at fifth generation aircraft that were designed to counter a Soviet peer adversary, many of the assumptions that they were designed for are suddenly relevant again. So rather than being relics of the past, fifth generation and student sixth generation aircraft will provide valuable kill chain superiority today and well into the future. So not only will they hedge our risk, um, these aircraft will have the ability to survive in a contested battle space to close kill chains at operationally relevant speeds and at the scope we speed, uh, scopes we need. If you think about what they were designed for, to go into bad guy land by themselves and be able to independently initiate kill chains and then also close those kill chains by themselves as consolidated nodes. That's what made them so successful in that Soviet context. We will need to have those kinds of options again, not just for today, but far into the future. The key is we're going to have to procure them in the rates and the quantity that a peer conflict would require. We can't take these fleets for granted and we cannot afford to repeat the mistakes of the past. The fatal flaw of the B-2 and the F-22 programs was that neither of those fleets were procured in the quantities that our nation actually needed. As a result, both of those fleets have been flown hard because the demand is there, but we don't have them in the quantities that we need. So we've also had to extend the life of older less relevant aircraft. We cannot afford to meet, make that mistake. And remember, these aircraft, the B2, the B2, the F22 and the F35, as I said, they were designed to operate against a peer adversary. So this makes them incredibly resilient consolidated kill chains that can be the backbone of US kill chain superiority in the near term and long into the future, because they can also be the pathfinders that develop and mature the tactics, techniques, and procedures for future kill chain systems. Even as if they go into that contested battle space and are cut off from higher headquarters, they can facilitate not only their own individualized kill chains, but they can facilitate localized kill chain execution within line of sight for a future disaggregated force. So for the midterm, what are the things that we need to do now? As I mentioned, we need to love the ones that we're with. We need to accelerate the rate of procurement of F-35 and we need to accelerate B-21 development and continue to invest in the modernization range and survivability of our fifth generation and soon our sixth generation aircraft as that bridge to uh, NGAD. Moreover, we need to increase and enhance the number of munitions we have. Advanced munitions can be a force multiplier for our kill chains, because those munitions need to be survivable, and we need to have the right stockpile of that as well. Part of this uh, is also increasing the interoperability of the force that we have, and I know that the Air Force is moving towards this, but we need to actually put that money into those modernization programs, and that is really uh, developing the advanced networks and connectivity across the force. For the future, you know, this is going to go into everything that we do in the near the midterm is going to set the stage for what we do in the long term. And again, this gets into a more disaggregated force, for example, collaborative combat aircraft uh, that will enhance the number of nodes that we have. But we need to ensure as we move into that future that we provide our battle managers the tools they need to rapidly identify, evaluate, and construct those uh, kill chains space will be crucial to this and we need to begin launching and developing those capabilities now and importantly the authorities now to ensure that those space-based that space-based sensing gets to warfighters and operationally relevant time frames which by the way is milliseconds not hours or days and then finally develop and accelerate or accelerate the development of ngad um, as that advanced multifunction node these will be uh, crucial as we think about the scale the scope, the speed and the survivability that we need to be able to uh, prevail in the future conflict. All of these long-term initiatives are great and we must remain committed to them. And I know Secretary Kendall with his operational initiatives is moving us in this direction, but we cannot delay or put off what we need to do in the near to midterm uh, because in the hopes that we'll eventually get to that future capability, we need to hedge risk in the near and midterm to ensure that we have the kill chain advantage within the next decade. So we've got to move out on what we can do today, because frankly, a conflict with China could begin within the next decade, and we need to ensure that we maintain that kill chain advantage. Thank you.
0: Hey, thanks, Heather, for that uh, overview of your study. It truly is remarkable. Uh, I I would like to get a, just a quick blush from uh, the two generals, and then we'll get into some questions. Uh, General Guastella, how about you?
2: Thanks, that's, uh, Heather. I think this was a phenomenal body of work that you've done here with uh, you and the team have done. And uh, really, if we just like you said to restate what you said, if we can do what what you're describing there is a the difference between success or failure as an air force or as as a joint force, even in the in a future fight. It is success or failure for our nation. You know, and as a former air component commander and to all the air component commanders that have gone before me. The, the the ratio between fixed targets that we classically would hit with a strategic bombing campaign and mobile targets or moving or dynamic targets or emerging targets that you described here is shifting every day in the direction of dynamic targets, the need for this kill chain approach because every adversary has studied us, just like you said, if fixed target equals risk and we have proven through decades that the United States Air Force can hold any fixed target at risk in the world. So if you want to stay alive, you want to be successful against us, make it a mobile target, and it'll be a lot harder for us and more survivable and more effective for the adversary. So that that percentage, 80, 20, whatever it may be now, is going to go nowhere but worse, which puts even more demands on the more of an imperative on what you described here. So this is this is time well spent. But, you know, and to the realism, though, or I should say the the unfortunate aspect of how we buy systems is we focus on platform by platform by platform. And are we really looking at the the objective, which is how do we integrate them all together for successful prosecution of a campaign? And I would say I don't think we always are. When you look at some of the even the fighters that you mentioned, the F-35, B-21, I shouldn't say B-21, but certainly with the F-35 and F-22, we were guilty back then of not making them as interoperable as we could have. So we're having to bolt on the very things that you're describing here to get over the Achilles heels that our adversary will pursue. And so my, my, my first challenge would be, you know, are we writing K performance parameters to get after this highest objective, which is closing the kill chain of the future. Are we writing that in so the performance parameters up front? Um, you know, and as a former programmer, the easy place to go for money is in WRM, you know, which is the, the, the munition stockpiles. You know, w- at what rate are we buying munitions? Oh, geez, we need a few extra dollars over here for the system overrun. Let's just buy a few fewer of these particular munitions. But when you make that decision year over year over year, you'll see that you don't have the volume of weapons that you need and look at what's happening in the camp in the Ukraine fight right now. Uh, And that's a small scale fight compared to what we would be faced with. So are we, are we, are we taking risk excess, is the Air Force been taking excessive risk in WRM. you know, and then um, the, the the munitions piece—you can't hit that enough. We we've been embroiled in a land-centric campaign for twenty-plus years, and we've optimized our expenditures on munitions related to those coin violent extremist type of fights, and we've built some very good munitions for those fights. But what we've neglected are the munitions that that to that you describe here, and I think that's very very important. And then lastly, you know. You know, you you call it survivability. That's that's an excellent term. I call it resilience of the entire enterprise. How can we fight through this aggression that's going to come at those four different uh, areas that you described? That has to be built in from the front. We can't. It's very difficult to bolt on resilience after the fact. And so I'm really looking. I think this is a great piece of work. I think everyone needs to read this and study it, internalize it, and then dig into each sub area as we go forward. Again, thanks for the chance to comment
0: hey thanks general really well said Uh, out at your place there general goodman uh your uh, folks are going to have to work hard to to push us into this future i'm curious whether you have some thoughts
3: hey i do thank you again and it's an honor to be on the panel thanks for the opportunity to discuss this critically important topic uh from the perspective of the aaron at the 57th wing uh, and my teammates here at nellis um, as well as the warfare center Um, I think General Gastella is uh, spot on from the perspective of uh, conducting an air campaign. If anyone's paying attention, we know that this is where we need to go. Uh, The mission of the 57th wing here at Nellis is to train the next generation of warfighters for the high end fight, the Air Force, the Joint Force, and our allies and partners. Uh, And so I'm going to spend just a moment laying the the Nellis table uh, out, uh, and then we'll springboard into the rest of the conversation there's a saying as goes Nellis, so goes the Air Force. And I think that that's true. I call Nellis air powers proving ground. And if that's true, then it also has to be true for this particular focus on uh, completing the kill chain, the kill chain competition. Um, there's something really re- unique that happens out here and can only a- happen out here uh, at Nellis. Um, so let me just hit a couple of the, of the training events. Uh, in a lot of ways, we own the advanced training. So if kill chains happening, it should be happening here. Uh, Red flag, where we provide the first 10 combat sorties uh, for the Air Force Joint Force allies and partners. And we try to make it as realistic as possible. Uh, The weapons school, where we provide the Air Force and Space Force PhD level instruction um, on both instruction and war fighting. uh, And they have a weapons school integration that is bar none some of the best air power flying training that is conducted on the face of the planet. Also the the green flag and other joint uh, exercise events Importantly, it's not just the 57th, but it is also the 53rd who conducts a majority of operational tests. The 505th, the command and control wing who conducts those C2 command and control uh, TTPs and develops those, uh, the the 350th spectrum warfare wing. Uh, When we talk about, uh, anytime you see a lightning bolt, that's gonna be 350th business and uh, they are operationalizing that mission as well as the kit uh, where this fight's gonna happen. Uh, the NTTR, the Nevada Test and Training Range, True Gym, as well as the Air Force Warfare Center, who ties all of these things together. So the whole team has a vested interest in getting this kill chain uh, fight right. Uh, So thanks again for the opportunity, and I look forward to further
0: conversation. That's great, General, appreciate that. Uh, Let me me start with some questions here and peel back some of the pieces of uh, Heather's work. Uh, General Guastella, you began, as you said, uh, as a combat pilot, what, 1989. So you're at the height, at the very end uh, of the Cold War, uh, and then you retired as the A3, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations, and you had quite a span of control. That's a, that's a very incredible historical span too for a career. And I'm, I'm curious how you've seen the threat that Heather's proposing coming out of China, but overall the threat to U.S. kill chains? How's
2: has that evolved? No, this is a great question, and you're right, it is definitely historic. I'm feeling older every day that I've been out, but uh, yeah, no, the, did, uh, the, the, the the you know, when what we were faced with in the Cold War, we did kill chain, uh, you know, we did, we did try to close kill changes, that's what was envisioned, uh, and being, a, you know, a multi-role fighter based in Europe at that time, which, by the way, we had a lot to the scale point that Heather mentioned, we had a lot to scale to. And our goal back then was to identify forces, ground forces primarily, before they could be brought to contact with our forces and interdict them. And uh, the kill chain was really about how could sensors, some of those, uh, you know, signals intelligence, uh, human intelligence, uh, rudimentary overhead collection back then in the 80s, could that inform us before we took off so that we could plan a mission across enemy lines and, and do interdiction? And that's what we did, uh, was what we were planning on doing. So certainly it's evolved a long way. You know, Desert Storm shifted the entire thing from, you know the wall came down and, we, and then we, you know, we went to Desert Storm and then of course Iraqi Freedom in, in, um, and OAF. And the, and the whole game changed from fighting a peer to fighting, like I mentioned before, counterinsurgency fight, Counterterrorism fight, counter-violent extremist fight. And we got really good at closing the kill chains in those environments. You know, I think the the crown jewel would be how effectively we close the kill chain against a a high-value target individual who's moving between villages that if we get them, we minimize collateral damage, we take them out with one strike, and it's very effective. That's the crown jewel of of what we had been uh, doing in terms of kill, closing a kill chain for the last 20 years. But boy, does that set us up for failure in terms of what we were gonna do in the future because we lost the game against a competitor that can interdict our efforts upfront, just like Heather mentioned, as well as what kind of scale, what kind of scope uh, and what kind of standoff and survivability we going to need against the future fight. And that's where I think um, our our biggest limitations are, is in, frankly, it's in every one of those areas, um, munitions being one of the biggest ones. And so that's why I think the approach of having both a short-term, what can we do now with the toys we have to make them better, and then what you know what what uh, what can we do to build out the future to be successful is a, is a really good approach you know i guess just one one thing that that comes to mind and that is as an air component commander faced with a peer not a peer a near peer competitor a regional actor in in the middle east um and in, in several of our options we were forced to try to target dynamic things with older munitions. So I had the choice, if a target could move and we would see it, we had the choice of launching a long range standoff munition with an hour, hour and a half time of flight and hope that it didn't move during the time of flight or fly in there with airplanes, putting them at risk to try to get it that way. So our choice was between risk to mission, it moves and I miss with a million dollar shot or risk to force. Where I put my force in there overhead and have to fight through whatever uh, air defenses they had to try to retreat it that way. That's a crappy place to be because it was a, we were going to lose one way or the other on on the on the volume of targets we had to service. So that's the state of play right now, and we need to get better at that and header uh, charge that course.
0: Yeah, well said. Uh, let me let me switch to you, General Goodman. Uh, major challenge to the Air Force's future vision is you know, the the complexity uh, that Heather described of prioritizing and synchronizing sensors, platforms, weapons, you know, to construct and manage those kill chains. Uh, And again, as uh, General Guastella said, against still fleeting targets, a lot of dynamic movement, highly contested environment. This may imply that battle management will continue to be very essential to achieving this overall kill chain advantage. Can you share with us the role that uh, the Shadow Operations Center at Nellis, uh, Shock End, what what it's doing and playing to develop these tactics and technologies?
3: Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think the the scale and scope and the speed, as outlined in the paper, are really really challenging. Uh, the good news is the 57th Wing partners closely with the 505th I mentioned earlier, Command and Control Wing, and they develop those C two TTPs, the kill chain TTPs. Uh, in coordination with our um, intelligence professionals as well. And so they have developed that Shadow Operations Center at Nellis or Shock Inn. And that is where the Air Force's air battle management system uh, battle lab is housed. And that's that's their J-O-B. That's their day job. Um, so there's a state-of-art venue that allows government and industry to come together to get after those hardest problems. Uh, and this is the perfect place to do it. Uh, the best and the brightest are here at Nellis. The best and the brightest come to Nellis. Uh, and here's some of the largest live fly events. And so we tap into the data that is being conducted uh, just up range uh, to work through those hard problem sets. Um, and so the 505th is all over it. And they partner with government industry um, folks to develop the TTPs like Kessel Run's uh, assortment of programs, the Talk family systems, the kill chain automation Tools that we're going to need to get after this problem. Um, just to be clear, uh, the shock doesn't build the tools. We provide the venue or uh, here at Nellis for the testing, experimentation, and uh, TTP
0: development. Uh, very good. Um, e- you know, interestingly, uh, General Costello, you've got some experience in the space department um, when you were at uh, Headquarters Space Command. And, you know, the initiative is out there at the very front end to move the find, fix, track and target portion uh, to space. And what we're talking about is uh, moving target indicator or indication for both ground and air. And uh, what do you think about that? Uh, what are some challenges to moving and operationalizing, fitting in, I guess, space-based MTI?
2: Well, I'll say up front, number one, it's got to work. <laughs> uh, but certainly the potential is there for it to work in, and, and the technology is proving that more and more and more. I'm a huge fan of migrating mission sets from the air breathing domain to the space domain for a lot of reasons. Number one, a proliferated network of LEO satellites is that covers the globe offers scale and resilience that no air platform can can manage um, uh, ever. Uh, And so that, and we're not putting human life at risk if we're comparing it to a man platform. And so without a doubt, a proliferated LEO network that can accomplish those two critical mission areas, GMTI, Ground Moving Target Indication, and AMTI, Air Moving Target, AWACS, Air Battle Management, the picture, uh, if that can be done from space, I'm a huge fan of it. I think we've seen the technology prove itself is out front in the GMTI, the ground moving target uh, piece on space, and that's why we've taken risk in some of our legacy air breathing platforms like the E8 J Stars. Which, by the way, when I, you know, when I was a lieutenant at Ramstein, getting ready to go downrange for Desert Storm, uh, the first J Stars showed up at ramp in nineteen on the ramp in nineteen ninety. And so, obviously, it, it it's probably needs to be updated and go. And it, that's why the decision was made to move to space-based. But it has to work, like I said. And so, it's not been proven itself at the rate that it needs to in the air domain. And that's why we, we looked at our AMTI. It's not delivering. Our E3s are falling out of the sky. And the yeah. decision was made to move with another air-breathing platform, the E7, because it's so critical. We don't lose that ability to, to build and distribute that air picture to do the air battle management to win the air fight. So, again, huge fan of migrating to the domain. We have a space force now that hopefully can fight with these weapon systems with a warfighter mentality, not an intelligence collection mentality, but a warfighting mentality. And that's what those folks in uniform can do very well. And uh, so I'm very optimistic, but the technology has to be there uh, for us to be successful. Uh,
0: yes. Uh, so, as we play in the air environment. I mean, it may also engage space capabilities. But General Goodman, you know, you've got airmen out there at Nellis that are are truly innovating and adapting uh, to keep this kill chain advantage. But what I'm what I'd like to focus on is how do you create that experimental sandbox, you know, that realistic training environment, range environment, uh, with the level of complexity, Uh, being able to simulate the threat to really stress test future concepts?
3: Hey, thanks for the question. I think that's absolutely the right question we need to be uh, talking about and answering right now. Um, We, in fact, have the um, NTTR. It's an incredible national treasure. uh, And we're doing things to create the, we'll call it the live fly. experience whether that's standing up to the 65th aggressor squadron with f-35s the fifth gen but it's not about that it's about the kill chain uh, and, a, and a real red kill web um, another example is increasing the joint force and joint warfighting concepts that we're exercising uh, as an example both weapon school and red flag teams are including in their plans and execution blue and red forces max capabilities specifically maritime force integration at the end of the day it It ain't just gonna be uh, the Air Force. This is a joint problem uh, to work through together. Um, And it's gonna be key to the joint fires in the future kill chain. But I wanna hone in on one particular aspect and that uh, a fight with a near peer or a peer adversary is not gonna occur over the NTTR or an airspace that's size and shape like the NTTR. Our training ranges don't support both blue and red capabilities, tyranny of distance, threat ranges, the electromagnetic spectrum uh, that we expect to encounter in that pacing theater. Uh, And although live fly is incredibly important to airmanship, flight leadership, basic integration, those constraints, range size, spectrum, restraint, or constraints, uh, and replication limitations uh, to what we can accomplish need to be mitigated. Uh, And so from the 57th wing perspective, we are and we must continue to push these training events and capabilities into the synthetic environment um, as much as we possibly can. And central to that is resourcing operational uh, test and training infrastructure, OTTI, um, specifically the Joint Synthetic Environment, JSE, so that we can conduct the the capabilities, the the ranges, the replication, uh, the war reserve modes uh, to replicate that relevant electromagnetic spectrum so that we could get after the scale, scope, speed, survivability as we onboard all of those capabilities. Um, What that looks like here at Nellis is the virtual uh, test and training center, and there are others, uh, but that's gonna be key to the way that we fly, fight, and train in the future.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, curious as, as, you know, we talk about some of the details of Heather's uh, work, you know, this need to build more Non-traditional nodes into a kill web. Um, you know, one example uh, discussed in the ABMS uh, topic is communication pods on, you know, KC-46s uh, to extend battle networks. Are you, have you seen any more ideas like that out of your folks?
3: Yeah, thanks for the question. The uh, non-traditional nodes are not necessarily a new concept. It's a good concept. Older airborne communication nodes like like Bacon and Rogue um, have helped us over the years. But one newer or novel concept uh, that we're pivoting to um, is our special warfare airmen and our JTACs uh, in addition to the airborne platform. So as we push these long range training events that encompass airspace all the way from California to Utah or push out over the Pacific Ocean, our spec war airmen and JTACs are moving towards the sound of guns, establishing those mesh networks um, across the talk family of systems uh, and helping us to connect and complete the kill chain. So jTAX KC-46s, I include Space Force assets into, into that bin. The question is what's not a node as we go forward? And the good news is that we're thinking creatively in all aspects, both in training and it sounds like the Air Force is going that way as well. And we must think that way.
0: Yeah, and I, and I kind of link this to Heather, if I could address this to you. You know, shifting to this disaggregated kill web, the need for more nodes. What what's a risk to this, uh, and can that risk be mitigated?
1: Well, clearly the risk is as we move towards more disaggregation is the connectivity. That's the easy the easy way to break the kill chain is is destroy the connectivity through denying data links uh, through electronic warfare, um, cyber operations, and so forth. And so the key for us is going to um, uh, be providing self-healing mesh type networks and also changing potentially or pivoting the way that we communicate. So not omnidirectional, this is not new, um, F-35, F-22, um, B2 have had uh, low probability of intercept, low probability of detect um, uh, data links, which are very directionally focused, which are very low power. We might think about different phenomenologies. So um, laser comms might be uh, one way of being able to do that, but also how we how we share that information. Maybe we just need to have a yes or a no. Maybe we don't need to share full bandwidth. So there's a lot of different ways that um, that we can't quite get into right here, but how we're shifting and looking about uh, the operational concepts of our networks themselves, not just the hardening of the network or the encryption of the networks.
0: Yeah, um, I, I'd ask uh, General Guastella, we, we need to shift to some audience questions here, but. One last question about, uh, you you brought up munitions. Uh, Any thoughts about attributes in this future of munitions? You
2: know, this is a very important area to consider because when you think about it, uh, you know, it, munitions, what we build out in the future is at the end of the day, that's the final element of the killing, uh, of taking something out. Usually there's non-kinetic ways, but the kinetic means it's the final piece is the munition itself. And the munition, that, like I mentioned the trade-off before, if you have an exquisite long-range munition that's survivable, but it can't be in-flight updated, uh, then it that can be rendered useless. You know, and then the other side is if you have munitions that involve a gravity drop that have to be close proximity of a target, you may suffer significant risk to force. So, and, and, in, and in building out the munitions of the future, like, like our, the Mitchell report describes is, is a significant trade-off between, you know, how, how, how exquisite the munition can be, how long range does it need to be? Is it updatable? Uh, is it survivable on its flight in? That, co- all those things cost a lot of money. Compared with the volume that we have to that we have to, uh, you know, build towards to be successful in the campaign, and I think I think the middle ground, uh, and for, Heather, correct me on the term. It's uh, the affordable or the uh, the affordable mass. I'm not sure of the terminology that's used. I think is the sweet spot for the for the. The volume that we need to, to purchase. But we also probably need a few of the ex- really exquisite high end things. And we certainly need some of the low end fighting uh, munitions. But yeah, I know not answering very specifically, but it's a very critical piece of work. And it, that means also teaming with industry to ensure we get it right.
0: Well, thanks for that. And thanks uh, to you two generals Guastella and Goodman for a great discussion today. So we're gonna move to our next segment, which is to see, we've got a few minutes left uh, for some audience questions. And uh, once again, I remind you, you can raise your hand uh, in the Zoom function or type it into the Q&A block. And uh, when I call on you, identify yourself, make sure you unmute your mic. And the first question goes to uh, John Turpak. Good afternoon, gentlemen, can you hear me? You bet. Okay. For Generals Goodman and Guastella, uh, Heather did a great job talking about we need all of the above. Um, Can you narrow it down to the number one or number two single point of failure where if we don't have a certain thing, whether it be NGAD or F-35 or JADC2, uh, it's all for naught?
2: Maybe I could pitch in first and then face. You can get more specific with, uh, with your response. But I would say, John, the number one thing is we need the fifth gen fighters in the sufficient volume to get after the threat. We, we are flying around with a huge portion of our force that is fourth gen fighters, which is not survivable in high-end fight with third gen munitions. I mean, we're talking old and older. And so we have to produce fifth gen aircraft to include bombers, Uh, and and hopefully building the sixth gen aircraft at a rate that's commensurate with the state of our air force that is number one because those aircraft will ensure that the delivery platform is survivable that a huge part of the sensor shooter is right there and available and they're coming off the line now but they've got to come off in sufficient quantities that would if you wanted me to point at one thing that's first
0: very good thank you general goodman
3: yeah, I, I would tend to agree that um, we are in a bit of a, a foot, on, uh, you know, in two places right now in terms of capability. So the faster we could close that capability gap, uh, and then it is hard for me not to say that a cross-cutting enabler is training. And so whether we find ourselves in that synthetic environment trained to the full electromagnetic spectrum that we've talked about uh, in the places uh, where we can do those things, bringing the whole team... That is both the Air Force, uh, the Joint Force, I would include the Space Force uh, primarily in that so that we could
0: uh, uh, close the kill chain. Thank you. Hey, we have a a written in question and I'm gonna direct this toward Heather. Uh, Does this discussion speak to why SWAPC issues are so important for things like F-35 and B-21?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, swap C, and I say that's size, weight, power, and cooling uh, are crucial physical attributes that we need to take into consideration for every single platform that we plan on putting in space and into the airspace. So, um, yes, this is essential considerations. One for uh,
0: General Goodman here. Do you see any changes in exercises like red flag to uh, reflect winning the kill chain?
3: Uh, I do. I do. There is currently an exercise redesign that is occurring uh, within uh, Air Combat Command. But all the way through the Air Force Warfare Center, we are revamping um, all aspects of all of our uh, exercising that occurs, weapon school integration, but also at red flag and green flag. Red flag, you're going to see more and more um, exercising that includes the scale and the scope of the ranges that replicate that tyranny of distance. Um, so there's a physical aspect of all of those. And more and more, uh, whether that is overland and over water to do as much as we can to replicate the true red capability and provide that opportunity for the blue kill chain to be exercised. So we're, we're, we have to build the house big enough for that competing the kill chain to fit inside of it. And that's going on now.
0: Uh, one last question here, we're almost out of time uh, and I'll throw it to the panel. Your perspective on where AI fits with respect to optimizing or getting to Heather's uh, vision of scale, scope, speed and survivability. Heather, you wanna start with that?
1: I think AI is a critical component, being able to cut through the complexity of the future battle space and uh, proposing uh, 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 optimized uh, kill chain pairings for uh, weapon systems and the munitions that are uh, appropriate and in range uh, for particular targets. But I believe we will always need to have humans that are QCing that because they will be responsible as battle managers for not just the pointy end of the kill chain, but all of the motherhood that supports it as well. And so there may be some non-intuitive or non-AI or outside of the algorithm decisions that those humans would make. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because China has difficulty dealing with, um, they need certainty. They have difficulty dealing with chaos, innovation and out of the box thinking.
2: Yeah. Generals, anything? Well, so, that's, I just into Heather hit the nail on the head. The human's always going to be in the loop if the AI can help focus those valuable human resources more quickly. Perfect. I will say a critical aspect is integrating in. Do a better job of integrating in open source intelligence there is so much out there that's open source that's not doesn't require an exquisite military or in um, ic community asset to find when you can bring that in and integrate it with with military capabilities you can really get after the scale of finding and fixing things much faster and i'll just uh just wanted to add that piece to the question
3: you bet yeah couldn't agree more the scale scope speed and survivability Uh, we need ai to do what ai can do let humans do what humans can do Uh, we're not going to need to find one needle in a haystack Uh, we're going to need to find one needle in a thousand haystacks so where we can automate that portion of the kill chain and allow ai leverage ai to do what it can do best uh, that's when it's going to work best for us
0: well thank you we've come to the end of this aerospace nation and uh Heather, I just want to compliment you. You've taken a very complicated subject and made it understandable and distilled it down to its essence. And uh, General Guastella, as always, it's a pleasure to have you with us. And uh, General Goodman, please pass on to your team how much we appreciate their service to our nation. So to you and our audience from all of us here at the Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace
1: power day.